so we are going verse by verse by verse by verse through Ephesians together. And so far we have covered the contents of our spiritual account in Christ as well as how do we access that spiritual account. And now we are looking at the progressive nature of knowledge. In this last week, I shared that there is a natural flow to learning that takes place in all of life that is also applicable to those who are disciples of Christ. And that is, regardless of the topic that you are learning, we start in an area of ignorance. That is, we, we start with a lack of knowledge. We don't know anything about that particular topic. We're being introduced to it, and that's what moves us to the awareness stage. Awareness is now the introduction of knowledge. And after knowledge has been introduced, we move into a practice of knowledge. That is application. And then finally, there is proficiency with knowledge or a perfection of knowledge. So all of learning follows that same basic pattern. It doesn't matter if you're talking about learning to read or learning to ride a bike or learning to cook or for that matter, for those who are followers of Christ, learning what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully, it's going to follow that same progression. We go from ignorance to awareness, from awareness to practice, from practice to proficiency. The goal is ultimately to get to proficiency. Now, this progression is vitally important for a follower of Christ. If you're a disciple, literally the definition of a disciple is a follower of Jesus, a learner of Jesus. In other words, every part of our spiritual journey on this side of heaven is going to be one of learning and growing and sanctification and spiritual maturity. We are coming into the truths of God's word, understanding those, and Lord willing, by his grace, living them out. And Lord willing, over the course of time, we are able to live it with greater and greater proficiency. It should be that it is moving towards spiritual maturity. We go from ignorance to awareness, from awareness to practice, from practice to proficiency. Mature disciples are not only those who know the truths of God's word, mature disciples are those who live the truths of God's word in greater and greater areas of proficiency. So the distinction of this idea, this whole progress, this process of learning, the reason that is so important for us is it comes directly against one of the greatest breakdowns of genuine discipleship that has been plaguing the church. And that is there are entirely too many believers, entirely too many churches who focus so much on the awareness stage, feeling as though the goal is just make people aware of the word of God. And now we want people to be aware of the word of God. But one of the pieces I brought up last week is Christians are aware of far more scripture than we are proficient at living. If you never heard another message for the rest of your life, you've probably heard more messages at this point than what the bulk of the world's population will ever hear. The question is not always, what am I learning new, but rather, what am I living at a greater and greater level of proficiency and faithfulness with God? So Christians are aware of far more truth than we are proficient at living. And one of the things we have to be careful about is that we are not creating processes that we are not creating systems where we are simply educating believers as opposed to making mature disciples. If we're not careful, knowledge alone, according to the Bible, will puff somebody up with pride. That is not the ultimate goal. The goal is that we look like Jesus, follow Jesus, and allow him to live his life through us. So tonight, 
I invite you to go back with me again, Ephesians chapter number 1. We are going to be verses 15 through 23 again. Uh, tonight is part two of a message that I began last week entitled Praying for Proficiency. There's actually going to be three parts to this particular message. This is part two. Uh, we are breaking it down this way because there were two parts of the Apostle Paul's prayer that we covered last week. Tonight we cover one more part, and then next week there's going to be another part of this. And the reason I'm wanting to do this is I don't want us to rush through how important this particular piece is. These three weeks could be a game changer for those who are really wanting to say, God, what does it look like for me to walk in a greater area of faithfulness with you? And it begins in this area of prayer. So that being said, look with me if you would, Ephesians chapter number 1, and we will be in verses 15 through 23. It says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what he's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May we truly get this one simple phrase out of this prayer. Lord, may we see your glory in a way that we have never seen it before. And Lord, as the text describes, God, may the eyes of our heart be opened to the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God, we need you to do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this last week, we covered parts one and two of Paul's prayer. And I'm just going to give those to you very, very quickly. Paul prayed first that we would know God fully in verse number 17. He also prays in this same context that, that God would give believers a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That word wisdom, it speaks of a deeper knowledge that is gained by experience. And revelation means disclosure, manifestation, or enlightenment. Uh, Paul is not just praying that people would gain more wisdom and revelation so that they could just be smarter. He is praying that they would gain a personal knowledge that comes from this intimate union with Christ, this relationship with Christ, this experiential knowledge that's not learned in books, but rather it is learned because you have been in the presence of God and it is God who is leading you into this deeper awareness. 
So the only way that we actually get to know anyone at that level is to spend time with that person and for that person to reveal themselves to us. You can learn about somebody in a book or you can learn about somebody by hearing somebody else to describe them. But if you want to get to know that person, you need to spend time with them. And they need to be willing to open up and share something with you. They need to be able to share, these are my desires, these are my wishes, this is what uh, my hopes are, this is what I want and do not want. Like It needs to be that there is both time in the presence of that one as well as revelation, a revealing of who they are. That's the way we get to know someone. So he is praying that they would have a wisdom and a revelation, a knowledge of God that comes from that type of experiential uh, understanding and knowledge. The second piece he prayed is that we would know the hope of his calling. And if you remember, we emphasized two words there, hope as well as calling. Uh, the side of hope is the fact that hope in our culture is often used of hopefulness, like wishfulness, I, I hope this will happen, this might happen, this could happen. But hope in the New Testament is describing the fact that it is a certainty based upon the finished work of Christ. And then it comes into this calling. And that's something that we don't emphasize probably as much as what we should. And letting people know that you have been called by God into an intimate relationship with him. We did not figure God out. He called us. He elected us. He redeemed us. And he's praying, Paul is praying, that the eyes of our hearts would be open to the hope of his calling. Now, if you'll remember that key phrase, the eyes of their heart, in most of the modern cultures uh, of today, the heart is considered to be the seat of emotions and feeling. But in a lot of the ancient world, the heart was considered to be the place of deeper knowledge. It was said that by, by the ancients that the heart could understand what the mind itself could never even fully grasp. So here's what he's praying. That's the way Paul's using it here. here here's what he's praying. There are parts of who God is that if it stays in intellect, academia, intelligence alone, you're going to miss what it is that God is about. And here's the reason we could say something like that. When you're thinking about the hope of his calling, thinking about who it is that has brought you into relationship with him, if you try to look at that on a purely academic level, when life gets hard and things are turned upside down, that same intellectual level will say, am I making all of this up in my mind? When it seems as though you pray for someone and that individual still goes through trials, that, that individual still passes away, and in your pain and in your agony, you're saying, God, am, are you even there? Am I even praying the right way? In, in those moments, it's very easy to mentally check out and to say, maybe I'm just making it all up in my mind. But when the eyes of a person's heart are opened up, when there has been that revelation and the knowledge of him that comes by being in the presence of God, when you know what you know what you know because you have been with him in the deepest and the darkest as well as the most wonderful and exciting parts of life, even when you get into those hard things, it's no longer an academic exercise. You're like, you, you can't tell me what I know. I feel it in every fiber of my being that there is a God, that he knows me, that he loves me, that he is providing for me. That, that's what he's saying. God, help them so that the eyes of their heart are opened, that they will be able to know you in that way. 
So that now brings us to our third part of his prayer request. Paul prays that we would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. The riches of the glory of his inheritance. If you'll notice in verse number 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And then he gives the one phrase. That's a part of what we covered just a moment ago as well as last week. Then he's also praying at the same time that you would be able to understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And, And what I want to emphasize for the bulk of our time tonight is that phrase, the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. This is one of those phrases that might seem as though it is just a cerebral con, uh, idea or concept. But this is one, if it gets into the core of who we are, we don't see God the same way. We don't see our walk the same way. We don't see circumstances the same way. Now, I want you to look at that again and ask yourself the question, whose inheritance is that phrase referring to? The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance? His inheritance. Here's the beauty of how the word of God is laid out. There is not a single part of it that is not needed. Every single piece there tells a beautiful part of the story. Verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 18, it says, in the saints, he has an inheritance. Did you get that? A part of God's great wealth is his people. It says that we are a part of God's inheritance. And and whenever the Bible refers to God's inheritance, it's always connected to a person or a group of people. So let me give you a couple of references. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse number 9. It says, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Again, it's connection back to a person. Psalm chapter 94, verse 14, it says, for the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Psalm 28, verse 9, it says, save your people and bless your inheritance. All of those passages are Old Testament passages. So now let's bridge that over into the New Testament. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul told Gentile believers in Rome that you were chosen in Christ. And he says it, I quote it like this. You being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Romans chapter 11 verse 17. That is, there is a uniting together of God's people. If you are a follower of Christ, if if he has called you into relationship with him, you are a part of the family of God. So now as the Apostle Paul speaks of God's inheritance in verse number 18, it also includes this word, the saints. Did you see it in the text? What are the riches or the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Saints. The word saints is a strictly New Testament term for followers of Christ, believers. He says, we're now also a part of this inheritance of God. So there is a cultural and as well as a historical understanding of the statement, but there is also a powerful idea that is being conveyed. And this is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time tonight. Proficient disciples 
reflect God's glory. Every part of that statement is important. Proficient disciples, mature disciples, those who are going further and further in their faith, they are walking in an area of proficiency and excellence. Proficient disciples reflect, that's key, reflect God's glory. You're going to see why that's so important in just a moment. But it's God's glory that is being reflected in this. So I want you to listen to this connection between God's glory and what you might call mature or fruitful or proficient disciples. This is out of John chapter 15, verse 8. And here's what I want you to do. Keep listening. I'm going to try to keep pointing it out. Keep listening for glory, 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 glory. Over and over, we're going to keep hitting glory. Listen to what Jesus says. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our ability to bear fruit, if you know in the text, is contingent upon our abiding in Christ. Amen? Amen. You know that's where it's out. He is the vine, we are the branches. We cannot bear fruit of ourselves unless we abide in the vine. That's what he's teaching right here. Okay, so all of this comes back to the fact our ability to bear fruit is contingent upon abiding in Christ. We are not fruitful because we know the right stuff. This is not an awareness thing. We are fruitful because we are abiding in the right place. We are in him and he is living his life through us. And what happens when Christ lives his life through us is we bear much fruit. We mature in our faith. We go further and further along. And what Jesus is saying is, my father is glorified by that, that you bear much fruit. Oh, but listen, we're about to get tricky in here. John chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. So how is it that Jesus does not receive glory from men? And yet the Bible says God is glorified when we bear much fruit. The answer is found in the source of glory. Listen. Just as the moon does not have illuminating qualities in itself, but it reflects the light of the sun, so neither do we have glorifying quality in ourselves, but we reflect the glory of our Creator. In other words, anything that is redemptive in us, that is beautiful in us, that is praiseworthy in us, that is glorious in us, that is incredible in us, it is not because of us, it is completely because of him. We do not generate glory ourselves, rather we reflect the glory of our creator back to him. Now, I don't want to go too deep in this because I don't want people to get crazy confused, but just think of it like this. If a person does not understand reflected glory, we're basically saying that somehow an imperfect, sinful part of creation can bring glory to a perfect, holy, and righteous creator. How could that ever happen? We're also saying that if we're giving him glory, that somehow his glory is not always topped off at 100%. We're basically saying somehow his glory is deficient. How is it that a sinful, created being could ever bring glory to God? It's not that we generate glory for him. It is that 
in our lives, if there's something praiseworthy, it is reflected glory back to the one who made us. Just know, God is 100% glorious all the time. We can submit to God and prove him glorious, or we can reject God and prove him glorious. His glory is not diminished by our choice. His rule is not jeopardized by our ignorance, and his plans are not hinging upon our approval. He was 100% glorious before we ever arrived on this planet, and he will be 100% glorious when we are no longer on this planet. God's glory meter has never dipped below 100%. So listen, proficient disciples reflect the glory of God. We don't generate it. We reflect it. Now you need to understand that when you get into this third part of his prayer. He's praying, God, would you open their eyes to your glory that is, it's reflected in the saints. Now this is probably the most obscure of the four prayer requests that he brings, but it could easily be the most memorable of the four that he brings. So I want you to listen again to this word glory over and over. We're going we're gonna to share an ancient story here. It's one that starts in eternity past. Listen to this story and listen for glory. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go through it, so i got to talk fast. According to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Luke 10, and Revelation 12, we can piece together the account of how Satan enters the story of God. According to Scripture, Satan, or Lucifer, did not start out bad. In fact, he is described as having the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was the anointed angel. It says he was blameless in all of his ways until unrighteousness was found in him. According to Ezekiel's description, Lucifer's heart was lifted up with pride because of his own beauty. Isaiah shows his attitude. It says, Lucifer said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In essence, Lucifer is overwhelmed with his own beauty. He is so enamored with himself that he thinks all the attention should go to him. He wants the worship of the angels. He wants, here it is, the glory of God. And he also wants the praise of creation. So in an act of rebellion, Lucifer challenges God and loses the rebellion is short-lived. He is cast out of heaven. The Bible says a third of the angels go with him. Those who are the angels who left, those defectors are the ones that Scripture afterwards refers to as demons. The entire rebellion is over glory. In essence, Satan attempts to be a glory stealer. Okay, that, this is where the story is, and it's going to be important. You, you got to understand the story to get where he's praying about over here. Now move forward in that timeline. When God created everything, his imprint was upon his creation. So Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, when you look out at nature, 
You're seeing the attributes of God. You're seeing the glory of God. Nature holds that mark. So listen to all these other phrases. Psalm 19, 7. 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. When you, when you look out and you see that beautiful sunrise, that beautiful sunset, when you, when you see a lightning, a thunderstorm come through, it, it's telling of the glory of God. It says in Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his glory. When God created humanity, Scripture says that we are created in the image of God. We bear the likeness of God. That's why it says, what is man that you would remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Here it is. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Do you see where this is going? God's glory is seen in his creation because of that. When Lucifer looks at the sky, he sees the glory of God. When he looks at the earth, he sees the glory of God. When he looks at humanity, he is reminded of the glory of God over and over and over again. Everywhere he looks, he keeps seeing the glory that he wants for himself that is God's alone. Now, Satan knows he could never take God's glory. But the goal is how do you diminish and obscure the glory of God? Satan's pursuit of glory moves from the corridors of heaven into the Garden of Eden. So if you think about what happened in that original story, if he can get humanity to rebel, those who were created in the image of God, then God's glory through humanity is going to be tarnished by that rebellion. And listen, and it worked. With the introduction of sin, we now have disease and pain and war and famine and struggle and death. All of those are now a part of this world. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Do you see what's happening here? He can't take God's glory. But if he can do something to tarnish the glory, that's what the goal was. So with the introduction of sin, God's glory in creation is not nearly as clear as what it has been in the past. How many times have you talked to somebody who is not a follower of Christ and they'll say, if God is real, then why does sin exist? Why is there poverty? Why is there famine? Why is there disease? Why is there murder? Here's what they're saying. You're saying there's a God, but I can't see it clearly through the world that I'm looking at around me. Now let's fast forward a little bit in this storyline. 2,000 years ago, God shows up in the flesh. Divinity is clothed in humanity. The fullness of God's glory is displayed in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Now listen, Satan has already waged a war against God's glory in creation and a war against God's glory with humanity. But how do you take out the glory holder himself? He tries to kill him as a child through King Herod. He tries to tempt him as an adult in the wilderness. He tries to entice him to act outside of the Father's will while he's serving. And finally, he tries to kill him at the hands of his own creation on the cross. And that worked. As Jesus draws his last breath, you can almost hear the celebration of the demons. The radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature is gone. It looks as though Satan has won. But three days later, 
That same Jesus has breath that returns to his body. That same Jesus is physically resurrected from the dead. On the third day, he gets up. This time, the sin debt is paid in full. The enemy has now been defeated, and his glory can now be seen in ways that humanity has never seen before. So now when somebody enters a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells that person, lives in them, and listen, their lives become a display case for the glory of God. You can now see other parts of his character that you might not have seen before. You can see his forgiveness and his redemption and his love, his compassion, his justice, his holiness, his election, his grace. All of that is happening because it's now the Spirit of God living in that person. As God lives through us, his glory is now open for all to see. What looked like a crushing defeat for God became an even greater platform for his glory to be seen among the nations. Now I want you to take that thought back into this prayer request. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what are the riches of his glory. Where are the riches of his glory? In the saints. He says, oh, he's like, God, would you help them to see? Would you help them to see that their lives are, are those that are vessels containing the very glory of God? Help them to, to comprehend what it is that you have placed inside of them. Now, this is so important because this is a group of believers who were not living up to their potential in Christ. This was a group of believers who they were not experiencing living out of their spiritual bank account. They were, they were leaving so much. And he's like, oh, if they would just know what is the glory of the inheritance that is in the saints. Listen to Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is it? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did you get that? Oh, my goodness, I'm about to have to sit down right here. Listen. The riches of his glory in the saints, he's saying it comes back to Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. If we want our lives in any way, shape, or form to reflect the glory of God, the way that God has intended it for us, it has to be Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not because I got a head full of knowledge. A head full of knowledge will not get you anywhere. The issue is is it Christ in you? Is he living his life through you? When you and I live below our potential in Christ, the fullness of the glory of God is being practically hidden from those who are around us. They cannot see the creator the way that he wants them to see him. It doesn't matter how many gospel presentations we give. If people can't see God in our life, you're ob obscuring the very God that you're saying, 
I want to introduce you to. That's why it's so important that we are proficient disciples, that we are growing, that we're spiritually mature, that, that we don't find ourselves in a place of spiritual apathy where we just get up and we're like, all right, what do I do this week? Well, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to put some money in an offering plate. What are you going to do next month? I, I, I guess I'll be in church. I'll throw some money in an offering plate. Might even show up for Connect Group next month. How about the next month? Well, I've already gone through experiencing God 38 times in the past, but I guess we'll give it one more whirl. If we don't know it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, we spend the rest of our lives doing religious things and it's still not pointing in the right direction. But when we... When the eyes of our heart are opened to the fact that he has made us for himself. And when we are in right relationship with him, when we abide in him, there is freedom and there is joy and there is spiritual maturity and there is love for the saints and there is growth in our walk with God and, and God does things that we could never put them together ourselves and when he does it we could never take credit for him on the other side and there's freedom in that when, when you taste that you could never go back to dead religion again people think sometimes I'm just mad at religion and, and I might be in some ways but here's the thing when my life started, that my Christian journey started in deep legalism where I never felt like I could do enough in order to please God because everything I ever did, I could always say, you could have done more. If you spent an hour with God, it could have been two hours. If you served here, why didn't you serve there also? You gave this amount, but you still had some in your account. You could have given more. When you spend the bulk of your Christian journey never feeling like you measure up to what God wants. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ gets all over you. And you recognize that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And it is not about me performing to gain his approval. It is about what he has done on the cross that has now set me free. So now it's no longer I serve and I give and I go and I worship because the word says you have to do this. I now do it because I'm just like, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. May you be glorified. May you be praised. What, what could I ever do? Sometimes I get upset when people are like, I didn't like that song. It wasn't for you. <laughs> people don't like my messages all the time. But the issue is, Who's the focus of our spiritual journey? If our focus is that we make much of Jesus, that our, our creator is glorified in his creation, then every decision, every moment, every opportunity is to be submitted to him that he might be further glorified, reflected glory back to him. When you start walking that way, you lose fear of people. When you start walking that way, there's new freedom in your life. When you start walking that way, there's new joy in your life. I love Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Since some of y'all are looking at me, it's like your eyebrows are kind of <laughs> pinned back over here. Let me just go on and conclude this thing. All right. So where, where do you start? Like if you're saying, God, 
I want your glory to be reflected, fully reflected through my life. What does that look like? This is not in your notes. This is like bonus round material right here. Here's, here's three pieces. Where do you start? First, submit as God leads you. Submit as God leads you. There is safety in submission to God. When God is prompting you in an area, submit and walk in obedience. If he's calling you into that, he is providing an enablement of his grace in order for you to pursue him. Submit as God leads you. I would say a very practical part of that might be that as you're spending time in the word or time in prayer, it's good to journal what God is teaching you. If there's passages that are coming alive, if there's themes he keeps bringing up again and again, use that as an opportunity to sit with him and say, God, help me to know everything that you're wanting to tell me about this right now. I'm just going to sit with you in this and submit as God leads you. Second, unite with believers around you. We all need community. Christianity is not a solo sport. It is designed to be lived within a biblical community. The reason I bring that up is because transformation takes place as Christians are engaged in biblical community. There's, there are things that somebody else can bring up. Sometimes it is a piece that they're seeing. Sometimes it's a thought that they share. There's things that others can bring up that all of a sudden how they say it just grabs you in a different way. And you're like, I get that. I understand that. There's a part of being in community that sometimes if we're not walking in closeness with God, you might have a believer who loves you enough to say, hey, what's happening in your walk with God? Is it where you're hoping it's going to be? If you say no, like, how can I pray for you in that? That's a good Christian friend. Here's the third one. Serve others as God lives through you. God has put gifts and abilities and talents in every single believer's life. And a part of God's glory being reflected through us is that he is the one activating those gifts and abilities as we're willing to serve others. Ask God to do the work. So I know we got a lot that we've covered tonight. But I'm going to finish this evening just a little bit different. A lot of our Sunday evenings, we simple, simply have prayer and we dismiss. And tonight, I'm going to encourage us. We're going to have prayer. Our band's going to come back up. In a few moments, we're going to be introducing some new members, those who are coming into biblical community. Praise God for that. But between now and that moment, as we're going into a time of prayer, ask God, are there areas in my life right now that you are calling me to submit to you or to forsake altogether so that your glory is more fully recognized in my life? Just take some time. So if you would, let's take this to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for what it looks like to walk in the fullness of our relationship with you. God, unless you are the one who are, is opening the eyes of our heart to understand, unless you're the one who is prompting, enabling, then God, we, we get lost in a lot of just religious activity. So Lord, I'm praying right now that for each of us, if there's a peace in our lives that is 
in some way obscuring your glory coming through. Lord, would you prompt us of it? God, help us to release it before you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.